Are you ready to learn more about promoting play, defending childhood, empowering caregivers? Save 10% on professional development at explorationsearlylearning.com and support the show with the coupon code OOL. Click the link in the show notes to browse upcoming trainings. Hi, welcome back to Out of Line. I'm Annie Friday, joined by Candace Ogilvie. And today we have a special guest joining us, Rachel, who is a social worker and a parent and has come to talk to us specifically about being a parent to children uh, who identify as um, as LGBTQ. Um, Rachel, welcome. Will you give us a little brief introduction of yourself? Sure. Thank you. Um, glad to be here. I am... Uh, like you said, a social worker. I also facilitate a support group for caregivers of LGBTQ people, kids of all ages. Um, and I'm a queer person, which I didn't realize until later in my life. And I um, have two kids that are both LGBTQ. Awesome. Well, thank you for being here. Yeah. Um, you also facilitate some groups for parents, am I right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Parents and caregivers. Um, so it's a space to help folks get what they get the support they need to be able to support their, their kids. Um, from my perspective, that's the most important thing is being able to support, um, our kids and who they are. And sometimes we need support to do that because sometimes it can feel scary or confusing or overwhelming or um, any number of things. Um, so to, to take care of ourselves so we can show up for them. Mm, I love that. It's so important in so many elements of our role as parents and caregivers. Mm -hmm. um, so we were just kind of chit-chatting as we were getting ready to record. And one of the things that came up is, is kind of the very obvious, very present, very prevalent um, political climate that has kind of turned these very personal issues into very public and very political issues, which really they are not and they should not be, um, especially because the research shows um, that the majority of Americans are strongly in favor or at least in favor of protecting trans people from discrimination. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's really important to talk about because if you watch the news, if you're on social media, you might not feel that. So I guess that's something that I I specifically looked up because it it helps me feel better when I, when I, I get worried and I get concerned about kids mm -hmm. um, who are out there today, who are making the bold choice to be out and open um, and find themselves um, exploring their gender identity in ways that I never could, that we didn't do in the 80s and 90s growing up as often as is done today. Um, I guess, what do those numbers mean to you and what does that feel like to you? Yeah, so I would say that um, it is a frightening time. Um, there, particularly if you're living in a state that may, you know, the state that I live in, there was some threats earlier, um, last year, and it was a really scary time, um, 
and fortunately we're okay for now, but in surrounding states, there are bans on healthcare that are, that are happening. There is some positive, um, you know, there has, have been some places where positive things are happening as well. And so I think it can be hard to kind of hold both of those things at once. Um, and it's what's helpful to me is to connect with other people who I do a lot of advocacy work and it's helpful to me to connect with other people who are also doing advocacy work and just to feel less alone in, in that. Um, and I think, I mean, the one important statistic or number is that just having one supportive person in a kid, an LGBTQ kid's life uh, really significantly reduces their um, likelihood of attempting suicide, hmm. which unfortunately is overly common in this population because of lack of acceptance and discrimination and oppression. Um, but just having even one person who accepts them for who they are can really significantly um, improve their mental health and just general life. Um, and I think part of what that says to us is like how how important support is. And if, you know, you have a general network of support, then it makes a really big difference. Um, one of them, I, I know for some kids who haven't experienced resistance about who they are, it isn't even a very important part of their life. Like if they haven't had the pushback about it, it's just like, oh yeah, I don't really even think about this too much. Mm. Um, but for and it, you know, that depends on the age and that sort of thing, especially for kids who have known they were trans from a pretty young age um, and have been able to be accepted from the beginning. Mm. Um, yeah. 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 And I think that's really important because I think one of the arguments you hear, even from people who maybe consider themselves supportive or allies, um, they will say my kids are too young to learn about this when we know um, there's a very um, there there's plenty of research to show that that children by age four have a very concrete understanding of gender as far as it's taught to them and socialized around them. Um, they know what a boy does. They know what a girl does. And I'll never forget my own child coming in at four years old, stomping around mad, angry, like fuming. It was like one of those things, like they'd just been playing outside happy. And I was like, what's going on? And then I realized that one of the neighborhood girls was out painting nails and we'd always painted nails before. And my, my son at the time, my son was um, just turned four at the time and was like, he knew at that point he wasn't supposed to get his nails painted. So we had to have like a whole sit down, like, that's not how we play this game in our house. And maybe somebody along the way has made you feel that way, but go ahead and, and go out there and get your nails painted if you want. Like, and it, it took that, it was like, it took me aback because I hadn't, we hadn't taught that way. Right. And so I wasn't thinking that at age four, he would already have that, like, boys don't do this kind of attitude. And, um, and it happened. So 
to me, it's even more important to talk to them at those young ages and really help them understand and and ask the questions that that they have because there are questions, right? And sexuality is one of those topics that we have moralized so strongly that we don't feel comfortable talking to young kids about it when it's just part of who they are and part of human development, right? For them to understand not just their own gender, but gender as a as a construct and what it means. Right. And I do think it's important to differentiate between gender and sexuality and just generally to provide people with accurate information. And I'd be happy to give some links that you could include um, because I think there's a lot of misinformation that is fueling a lot of this, um, you know, kind of the political scenario, which I think is not in the best interest of kids, you know, um, it's coming from uh, other motivations, whatever those may be. Um, But I think gender is a different thing than sexuality. Obviously, they're connected, there are connections, but they're not the same. And so some, and, and kids do have, as you said, like, develop their gender identity, or are in the process of developing a gender identity, which happens over the course of our lifetime, um, in at three and four, you know, um, and even professionals, I've, you know, there is pushback from some professionals even about this is too young, but I think the vast majority of, um, you know, all of the, the, professional association, psychological association, medical association, pediatric, endocrine, all of those um, say that gender affirming care is uh, incredibly important and best practice care. So, um, and that includes, you know, there's a spectrum. So gender affirming care for a three or four year old who is maybe was assigned um male at birth, but wants to wear dresses and, you know, play with dolls is to let them do that. Um, And gender affirming care, there's no medical intervention at any of those younger, like prepubescent stages. Um, And once a kid reaches puberty, or is on the cusp of reaching puberty, and they've expressed a desire, you know, they understand as much as they can the what is going to happen to their body based on their biological, you know, the sex they're assigned at birth. Um, folks will use hormone blockers, which are completely reversible. Um, they are used frequently for kids who have um, precocious puberty who start going into puberty at a very young age and it just holds things. So just you're in a holding pattern. And if you stop taking the blockers, you will continue with your natal puberty. Um, And so that's to give everybody a chance to really like think about what's happening. This is always done in connection with a team of providers and mental health care, doctors, families, the whole, it's a, it's a, it's not easy to access this care and it's not easy to afford the care and it's not easy to, it's like a pretty challenging thing to actually receive gender affirming care. And there's a lot of narrative out now that it's like, oh, 
I woke up on Thursday, decided I wanted to be a girl, went to the doctor, came home with a surgery at, at 10 years old. And that's right. completely like not even, there's no reality to any of that at all. Um, but I'm going on a tangent. I think, <laughs> you know, okay. and then, I love tangents here. <laughs> you know, and then people may, when they're 15, 16, start taking hormones of the, you know, estrogen or testosterone. Um, which saves people, you know, if you go, if you go through puberty and that's not the, the, not what you want, that is a really distressing time for people to be going through the wrong puberty, right? Like already a really challenging thing to go through and imagine like, if you were to go through the wrong puberty, what that would feel like. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a really fragile time for people and mental health wise. Um, and then people, there's a lot of like other medical interventions people might need later on that they may not have needed, you know, if they were to, um, start earlier on that path. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there's no one way to be trans. There's people, um, or any type of identity within the LGBTQ umbrella. Like Mm -hmm. there are people who are perfectly happy with the bodies they were born with and they identify as binary trans. So like the opposite of, you know, we see them as opposites um, if they're assigned male at birth and they identify as female and they have all their original parts and they feel totally great about that. That's totally great. And for some people that's not true. Um, Mm -hmm. And then, of course, there are people who are non-binary or genderqueer or all of these other um, experiences of gender, um, which are important to allow to be the way that they need to be. Um, Yeah. I think one of the things that we have seen um, in our practice where we try and honor name changes, pronoun changes, things that might be exploratory, you know, sometimes people say like, well, what if it, what if they change their mind? So what if they change their mind? We are, we're allowed to change our minds. Like, right. That's the whole point of, um, you know, the education that we're doing is consent-based and non-coercive and it's honoring the person and, and the humanity in the the relationship. And so allowing um, name changes and pronoun changes, and, and sometimes it does happen multiple times throughout a month where it's like, well, actually I don't, I don't, I tried that and that didn't feel right for me. Um, I think it's wonderful. And like you said, I think there's a lot of reason to do it in those pre-pubescent ages um, because at at those ages, gender affirming care can just look like using a name or pronouns that might not be what you were given at birth. Um, And that can make you feel like a whole person. And even if it's just for a couple of weeks or a couple of months and then, and then they move on and they're like, oh no, it's actually he, him, not they, them or whatever it is. Um, And and there's no deficit to us, right? Like there there's, sometimes it can be hard to remember and and we have to kind of shift a little bit socially, but that's it for, for us on the receiving end as caregivers to these people. Right. It doesn't, um, it doesn't need to cost us too much, right? And I think sometimes it does because of the 
the communities we're part of or family systems or things like that. There's lots of ways to interact with those. And, you know, if you have a kid who's expressing a desire to, you know, have a different gender expression, wear different stuff or try some different names or try some different pronouns, like um, that's wonderful and amazing and I think the thing that more needs to happen is for us to get the support we need sort of work through anything that's coming up for us as parents or caregivers or you know teachers or whatever um because we've been socialized very strongly in a certain gender framework that is um but it's malleable like I I, over time have experienced that and I um you know, those um, implicit bias tests, like the Harvard ones mm-hmm. that you could take. And I definitely remember a time when I knew very little about being trans, like, and it was seemed a little funny to me or strange, or, you know, just like not something I was comfortable with or knew anything about. And the last time I took one of those tests, I had a strong preference for trans people, you know, it's just like, my, it's a malleable thing. And mm-hmm. we can have we can learn and grow and change our ideas of gender, which ultimately is an incredibly freeing thing for everyone. Um, I think that in a way, so much of the pushback has a lot more to do with people's uh, mm, repression of who we are and sort of the like, well, I didn't get to play baseball and I wanted to, or I didn't, I don't get to wear pink and I want to, or I don't want to, like, there's something to the, like, why do you get to be free? Mm -hmm. It makes me mad that you get to be free and I don't get to be free. Um, And I think that there's, you know, people, you talk about gender euphoria is the opposite of gender dysphoria of like the, freedom and beauty in being able to be who you are and having that maybe change over time and Mm -hmm. um you know because it does throughout the court you know my gender identity now I'm a cisgender which means I identify with the gender I was assigned at birth but my gender identity isn't the same as it was when I was five or ten or twenty you know like it changes for all of us Mm -hmm. and um, I think being doing what we need to do to be comfortable with that ourselves to let that kind of take its course with our kids. And there's lots of resources available for that and support available for that and kids books and all kinds of things. Um, even just in the last 10 years, that's really blossomed. Um, I love that idea of like, you know, so many parenting workshops I've gone to, whether it's been about screen time, gender identity, like any of this stuff. And I expect them to, whoever's hosting, whoever's presenting, whoever the expert is in the room, I expect them to talk about the kids. And and really often it's about the parents or the adults, the grownups in the situation and the work that needs to be done on that end. And that means like, literally, how do you use your screen and how are you modeling it for your children and the people around you? How are you using, how are you wielding your power and your gender identity and your ability to um, accept others and things like that? And I think you kind of hit the nail on the head with 
sometimes as adults, we don't even know that we have this unprocessed like jealousy. Like, why do you get to be free? You could replace that with, why do you get to be happy? Why do you get to um, explore? You know, why do you get to not work as hard as I had to work? And and there's, there is this notion that comes up in so many elements of being human of like, well, I had to go through that. So you have to go through that. And we can totally envision it differently for the young people in our world today. And it happens all the time, you know, I mean, I think that is a very common parenting experience. And especially even like, you know, when one of my kids was like five ish, and they were able to be very like direct and clear and autonomous. And, and when I was five, I'd already kind of internalized like, oh, I better take care of everybody around me. And it's not that great if I have strong feelings or needs, you know, and um it was agitating to me like I was I felt like you what who do you think you are (laughs) right Uh like and that happens it happens um in all kinds of ways like immigrant experiences and class change experiences over generations gender change experiences it's sort of this like well I had to suck it up and survive, you know, so that's what you need to do too. And if we don't, aren't aware of that or don't examine that or don't take care of that part of ourselves that didn't get what we needed, um, it's almost impossible to offer it to our kids, Um, Mm -hmm. which is why I think, you know, I'm in the therapy world and I think that that can, or, you know, just peer support, lots of different kinds of support. Mm-hmm. Um, to work through that stuff because in the I don't think any of us actually want that but mm-hmm. in those moments it's like something starts happening in our body where we feel like uh, well I don't know how people feel but we you know we can have these reactions to to those moments yeah. um, they're like sticking points and and yeah. I think the other thing that comes up with um with parents and and the generation of adults who, you know, maybe didn't grow up with the same freedoms of thought. um, We generally start with the assumption that our children are going to be cisgender, heterosexual, you know, to the sex they were assigned at birth. And so um, just that starting point alone is like coming in with a little bit of more of an open mind of what you know, we talk a lot about an SDE, like relinquishing any expectations you have for your children. And that's really hard work to do, but it's really important work to do. So I guess if there's one thought that you want to leave us with, um, you've worked with a lot of parents and caregivers over the years, um, both to youth who identify as part of the LGBTQ plus community and, and also heteronormative children. So I guess what what is the one overarching message that you feel like all parents are are and guardians are looking for or, or feel find comfort in or need to hear maybe they don't find comfort yeah, in it I think I think for me it's my guiding kind of principle is always like compassion and self-compassion so like it is hard it's confusing there are it's just especially with LGBTQ stuff or any other kind of thing and identity that your kid may have like there's a pretty steep learning curve and it does you know some people can experience grief some people can experience um 
all kinds of emotions. And I think practicing compassion for ourselves and showing up for ourselves will allow us to show up for our kids. I think that's the biggest thing. Um, I also just did want to mention before we're done that there is a pretty significant overlap of neurodiversity and gender diversity. And so I think just having an awareness of that. So kids that are ADHD or autistic, um, I think just because they're more willing to sort of see outside of boxes and containers and um, feel into their experiences are much more frequently exploring their gender identity. Um, and there are some resources specific to that as well that I also can share, but um, just having an awareness of that and knowing that that's a fairly common thing and that people may need support around both of those kind of overlapping experiences is is also really important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's something a lot of people don't know about. So thank you for mentioning that. Mm -hmm. um, and thanks for joining us today, Rachel. Um, we probably have many future conversations that we could continue to have. So mm -hmm. thanks for joining us. And thank you to all of you for listening to another episode of Out of Line. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye. It's time to become a member of Playvolution HQ and Explorations Early Learning. There's a free option and three paid patron-level options. All come with free stuff and ongoing automatic training and merch discounts. For as little as a dollar a month, you can become a patron. That supports our work and you get premium stuff like early access to fresh podcast episodes. Go to explorationsearlylearning.com slash membership or click the link in this episode's description to learn more. All the cool listeners are doing it. This has been an Explorations Early Learning Upstairs Studio production. Oh.